Then in Cream, we have one more individual, and boy, he was a powerhouse. And for the sake of the audience listening, will you tell them who that third member was? Peter Edward Baker, otherwise known as Ginger Baker. And what relation would Ginger Baker happen to be to you? Unfortunately, he would be my dad. You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents... Ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome on in. I have been waiting, waiting so long for this show. It's not something you're going to understand unless you grew up when I grew up, because there are those that say out of England came, I've heard it described as the first power trio, and I've heard it described as one of, there's no question, it was one of the the main power trios, and we're going to get into all that right now with a man who's eating an apple as we speak. And ladies and gentlemen, I would like you to meet Kofi Baker, K-O-F-I, Kofi Baker. Come on in, Kofi, say hello. Okay. It wasn't my fault that I was called Kofi. That was my parents' fault. Absolutely. So I, I have no responsibility for the fact that I was called Kofi. But it means born on Friday, which is Ghanaian. Um, it's a Ghanaian name if he's born on Friday. It actually means slightly naughty boy born on Friday. <laughs> and I was born on Friday, and I suppose I turned out to be slightly naughty, maybe. Right. Well, now, <laughs> the band Cream... And we're going to get into that. But they had kind of a young, brand new guitar player back in 1966. And I yeah, kept like hoping. 23, I think, wasn't he? 22, I, 23? Yeah, it? he was young. He was young. He was at the beginning of his career. And I was wondering, Kofi, as we get into the discussion this evening, do you believe that guitar player went on to actually get any gigs after that? Or did he just <laughs> disappear and di- like steam in the air? Did he just disappear? What do you think? Was he able to have a career? Well, I think he did pretty well. <laughs> right. For the audience listening, will you state the name of that guitar player, please? Mr. Eric, oh, sir, sir, Eric Clapton. Because he was knighted. He was knighted by the queen. Yeah. Just like Elton John. Yeah, Elton John. Ringo. Ringo Starr. Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney. Right, right. That's just amazing. Eric Clapton had just come out of a British band called the Yardbirds. Right. And he had, oh, and then after that, I believe he played with John Mayall. Yeah, I think so. John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Yeah, I know. It was, it was um, after Cream. He did that. Uh, he went off with the um, blanking on the name now. Um, what was the, what's the Bell Bottom Blues band? Oh, that was Derek, Derek and, and the, the Dominoes. Derek and the Dominoes. Right. Bell Bottom Blues, and they did Layla. Yeah, that's right. Right. The legendary Eric Clapton played the lead <laughs> guitar with Cream. And Lord only knows, ladies and gentlemen, I'm kind of being facetious. What is your estimation, Kofi, in regard to the skill level of Eric Clapton in regard to all other rock guitarists out there? Well, Eric was definitely a feel player. He knew, like my dad said, you know, my dad would always play with a lot. He played with um, some of the great guitar players, John McLaughlin. And he was like, you know, John McLaughlin can't keep time and all this kind of stuff because, you know, John McLaughlin's very technical, but he didn't sit into the groove like Eric. Eric could like just, you know, I mean, if you watch Cream and you watch my dad and Eric, you'll see that Eric's a lot of the time he's watching my dad and he's he's just just he's just nailing what my dad plays. He's just like. And it was perfect. Those two, you know, were really good together. My dad, you know, thinks he's his, he was his best friend and everything and all that stuff. So they just had a good lock in together. So Eric was the perfect guitar player for, um, you know, playing that clean stuff. He was a blues guy. I mean, it was my dad came from jazz. Jack Bruce came from jazz and Eric was blues. So they kind of, it, you know, like my dad would say, it was the jazz band Eric just didn't know. You know so. <laughs> okay. All right. People don't look at Eric Clapton and say, now there's a jazz player for you. Right, exactly. 
Now, George Benson, if it's George Benson, I would disagree with that. I would say they look at George Benson and others and say that there's a jazz player, a good jazz player. But with Eric Clapton, that's not what he's known for. Would you agree? Yeah. And the same with my dad, though. People look at my dad as a rock drummer, except for he would say he was a jazz drummer. But, you know, because he used to get fired from all the jazz bands because he was too loud. And the rock bands didn't like him because he was too jazzy. (laughs) Yeah. That's when he... That's, you know, that's when he decided, I'm going to put Queen together. He pulled up Eric and said, hey, I'm putting this band together. Do you want to be in it? And Eric was like, yeah, on one condition. I want Jack Bruce on bass. And my dad had played in played with Jack in the Blues Breakers, I think. Well, not, not the Blues Breakers, sorry. It was, um, what was the band uh, for Queen that he played in? I'm, I'm that would be Derek and the uh, Dominoes? No, no, no. Oh, that would that be. That my dad played in. What's it? Graham Bond. Graham Bond. Oh, Graham Bond. So, right. So my dad was in the Graham Bond organization, and Jack Bruce played in the Graham Bond organization with him. Right. Is um, that Lisa in the background? That's Lisa in the background, yes. Oh, what a wonderful... <laughs> your, your people that have... It's because of Lisa, I want you to know right now, that we're having this interview, and God bless her. She is a wonderful, wonderful child of God. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa, for everything. <laughs> Yeah, is her head getting big? No, she can't hear because I've got headphones in, so she didn't hear any of that. Okay, well, she'll hear it eventually. <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, great, great lady. Okay, wonderful she'll lady. Listen to the podcast. Right. Absolutely, she will. Now, look, we have Eric Clapton on the lead guitar with Cream. We have a guy named Jack Bruce who Clapton said. I'm not going to be in the band unless you put Jack Bruce on the bass. And you're saying that's how Bruce got in there, even though your father had played with Jack Bruce prior to putting Cream together. Right. And he had a big falling out with Jack, apparently. So um, that was the deal. Um, He had a falling out with Jack and put the new band together. So he was kind of surprised that Eric said, I want Jack. And he was like, really? I just had a falling out with Jack, but he liked Jack's playing. I mean, the, the two played together great, but they just personalities clashed. Between I mean, Bruce Jack, and your dad. Yeah. Uh, Jack was a jokester. He was always you know, pranking and joking. And my dad is not a jokester. My dad is very serious and you can't really play pranks on my dad or jokes on it. He doesn't, he doesn't get, that's not any sense of humor. So, I think that was probably one of the big things between um, Jack and my dad was the the different personalities. Okay. So Um, we have Eric Clapton, lead guitar. We have Jack Bruce on bass. And something that the public may not know, and I know this from my career, that after Cream was over and that put Jack Bruce out there on his own, he would later meet up with a guitarist from America, and I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. He was a rotund character, and his name was Leslie West. Leslie West, right. And Leslie West started in the USA with his local band called The Vagrants. And that was with a... Oh, yes, yes. He had a band called The Vagrants with a guy named Jeremy Storch in it. Jeremy later became a rabbi. and. All the time he was with the vagrants, Leslie West kept saying, I would like to put together my own band, which he did. And he got a hold of of Corky Lang, the drummer, another double bass drum drummer. And he would have the drummer hit the cowbell. And that became... Hang on, Corky Lang wrote that tune. Did he write that? Yeah. Oh, I don't uh, know who wrote the most it. The famous but I, mountain tune was, was apparently, I think Leslie West and Corky Lang, but Corky Lang wrote the words or something. I know, because I toured with Corky. Oh, so, oh um, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Corky and Leslie West, they created and had the biggest hit record that Mountain ever produced, and people adored right. that cowbell, and the name of right. the record, what the hit record was called, Mississippi Queen. Right. You know what I mean. What what yeah, what do you think a, about a, that? Did you like well, apparently, it? Apparently, yeah. Apparently, it was some woman in the audience that that he was into when he was playing, and and he he wrote the words because he thought she was a, in Mississippi. She was like the best looking woman, so he wrote the words Mississippi Queen. Okay, well, so people that's apparently where that comes from. 
people are out there saying, well, Rick, why are you bringing this up when Jack Bruce was not in Mountain? Okay. Well, well he was. He, he did. He joined Mountain. Well, he, he I no, remember. No, it was Cork. It was Ledley West and La Leslie. Leslie West, Corky Lang, and Felix Papillardi. Or some, right. yeah. Now later, that Felix left. He was gone, right. and they changed the name of the organization, and it became known as West Bruce and Lang. That's right. West there Bruce we Lang. go. There is the connection. It was Leslie West, lead guitar, the guy who sang Mississippi Queen, Jack right. Bruce from Cream on the bass, Corky Lang, Mountains drummer also on drums, Wes Bruce and Lang. How do I know this? I know this because a friend of mine was in the United States Army at that time, and he was in okay. Stuttgart, Germany. And guess who came over on the bass and gave a concert? Jack Bruce. Jack Bruce, Leslie West, and Corky <laughs> Lang. And he sent me pictures. He showed me where he came home, and, and I looked at the pictures, and there was West Bruce and Lang playing at the military base. So there is the connection between Jack Bruce and Leslie West and Mountain, of course. But then in Cream, we have one more individual, and boy, he was a powerhouse. And for the sake of the audience listening, will you tell them who that third member was? Peter Edward Baker, otherwise known as Ginger Baker. And what relation would Ginger Baker happen to be to you? Unfortunately, he would be my dad. <laughs> and, and he was the star, the star of a motion picture called Beware, Beware. of Mr. Baker. Right. Oh, my, oh, my. I am going to tell you that your dad, there's an old saying. I don't know if you've heard of it. I'm probably, uh, well, I'm not probably. I'm definitely years ahead of you in age. I remember they used to say they threw away the mold when they made this person. Or they threw uh, yeah. away the mold when he came along. I don't think they had a mold. <laughs> For your dad, I, either they did not have a mold, uh, meaning what? He was he was custom made, or did they throw yeah. away the mold after no, they made was, him? One or the other. He was custom, he was custom made because... <laughs> there was none was like you. He was yeah. a character. Oh, my. I'm telling you what, uh, uh, Kofi, I watched the movie Beware of Mr. Baker. And usually with a, a movie, and I watched the whole thing. I watched it from start to finish, and my lower jaw was like usually dropped down to the floor going, huh, huh, huh? And it was a true story. I mean, it was not fiction. It's very accurate, too. Yeah, it, very accurate. And there you go. As his son saying it was accurate, and I could not believe what I was seeing. Now, I yeah, forget. Well, that, was, that was only the tip of the iceberg, and that was also all of the best parts of my dad's life. There's a lot of stuff in there that they didn't cover because it was too dark. So uh, um, even if you left think that out. documentary is pretty out there, they left out some of the really bad shit because it was too bad. Oh, my. Oh, my. Were you, did yeah. you make an appearance in that movie? I did. I'm in the uh, Towards the End. Right. With a little, uh, where they interviewed you for two or three questions, something like that. Yeah, they, they interviewed me a few things. I mean, they woke me up. I was in my warehouse asleep and they woke me up. So I'm eating breakfast while they interview me. Um, I'm always eating. So, um, yeah, but they, they interviewed me while I was eating breakfast and then they interviewed me a little bit in a few other spots. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, uh, it definitely was a, um, experience growing up with him. It was, you know, I mean, he left when I was pretty early. He left when I was like seven or eight. Um, but the trauma didn't end there. It went on. <laughs> was there um, ever a time in your dad's life where there was not all this trauma and and, no. and drama. No, no. Did, he, he, for some reason, he just he just he thrived on it. it. Yeah, oh, he attracted it. Or he, I mean, I think he liked it because it seemed like he was only happy when he was unhappy. Right. Oh yes. I mean, it's weird. He was like, you know, I mean, he was just like, yeah. I mean, he just he was just always. I mean. He was always like just you know not having a good time. I mean he had I mean he I mean this past where he had a good time, but when I was around him there was always drama, there was always something going on that we was fighting with or 
fighting or something. His dogs had been poisoned in Italy and he was fighting them and he got accused of being a heroin at the dealing heroin to all the kids out there when he was up going went to Italy to get clean. There was always like everywhere we went there was like a saga. Even when he first went to Africa, there was all sagas until he met the Kutsi and then that was an even bigger saga. I mean that kind of when he met Kutsi that kind of ended my relationship with him because she she stopped him talking to all his kids. Oh no. No, no. So, no. Um, they you know. say, well, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, so get your medical advice from someone who is licensed to practice in the respective state over here in the USA. I'm not that. But what I can tell you is, as a man who has been around the block once, twice, maybe three times, when I see someone with that type of vindictiveness, that type of confrontational manner, that type of utter hatred that comes out at times in his body, that tells me, in my opinion, that that man could have been fighting demons that were inside of him that had nothing to do whatsoever with those to whom he inflicted hate or dislike. Right. Yeah. It was a defense mechanism to uh, to lure away what was inside of him being caused, maybe by his own upbringing. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I mean, that's what Karen, his third wife, said. He said, you know, he, he used to push people away from him um, just so he could make it easier to move on. You know, he would just push people away so he didn't have to deal, you know, be friendly or something or I don't know, but. He would uh, always do that. I heard you Just say push all the love people away. I heard you say that actually at the end of his life, he was actually a nice guy at certain. Well, I at mean, one point. I mean, the last time I saw him was you know he he got sick. I was I spoke to him on the phone. I said, "Look, I'm coming to England. Let's meet up at uh, Arnie Pat's, which is his sister's house. Let's meet up at Arnie Pat's and and." Um, you know, just buried a hatchet and everything. And when I finally got through to him without Kutsi getting involved, yeah, he was he was like, yeah, let's let's fix this and everything. And um, and then he got sick, really sick. So I was trying to get my plane ticket moved up to get here earlier because he got really sick and I couldn't get it moved up. So when I flew in, I flew straight to the you know, my friend picked me up and we went straight to the hospital and I went to see him. And he he was just he was like in a rebound. He was actually you know, he got really sick and they thought he was all going to die. And then he suddenly got a little bit better. And that's when I saw him. So it was really good, good timing. And he was, you know, he was just really happy to see me. And it was really, really good. And what was amazing was after I left, all he kept calling for was me. It was like, where's Santa Cruz? Where's Kofi? Where's Kofi? Where's Kofi? And, and, you know, I was on the road. I had to, I was in Scotland and he was in the South of, of England. So it was a long way away. So I, I was like, I'm going to be back round Monday, and um, that was like seven days after I flew in. I said, I'll, I'll be back in a week, and I'll come back and see you. I've just got to do the Scotland tour and all the, the top of England and everything. I'll come back, and I'll see you in a week. And he was like, okay, and he called for me all that time, and I was like, I'll be there, I'll be there. And he died Sunday night, and I, the day before I could get back to see him again. Oh, but, um, but the last time I saw him, yeah, on, on I think it was the, the Monday before, before Sunday he died, um, and it was really good. I mean, I got to talk to him, and I—I I, I mean, I, when I before he got sick, I was going to just say, I was going to just be myself and say, look, you know what? This is how I feel. This is—I wasn't going to be scared of him anymore because I was always kind of scared of him as a kid because, you know, he was—he was, he very was dangerous. The you know, movie dangerous. title of the movie couldn't have been any better had I named right. it myself. Beware right. of Mister Baker. And he used to tell me, he said, look, I brought you into the world. I can take you out of the world. I, I don't like, doubt that. Okay. No, <laughs> no, no. I put $20 on top of the table right now that you're telling yeah. me the truth. Right. I brought you into so, this yeah. world and I can take you out. <laughs> but he was a nice guy. He was polite. The last time you saw him, he was nice. He was polite. Well, it wasn't that much he was polite. He just couldn't. He was he he just gave in. He didn't he, have the he, energy uh, to be hateful. Right, right. He didn't have the energy to be nasty to me, and I think it was so good to see him, and I was so happy to see him. And it, I hadn't seen him for like a long time. We're talking four or five years, maybe. Um, 
can't remember. Yeah. And I only saw him for one day in that. So I hadn't really saw, seen him properly for like 10, 15 years. So it was, it was really good to, you know, actually sit down and actually talk to him. Cause the last time I saw him was at a gig. So we couldn't really sit and talk, but when he's in his hospital room, you know, and he was, he couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't walk out on me. So I, I, I just said how everything, and I was surprised that he, he responded to me with smiles and, and I was just really, I was kind of shocked that he was, he was so, you know, happy to see me. And, and so, you know, listening to everything I said and laughing and, and it was just, it was completely not what I expected, but, um, you know, so, and there you go. Um, was there was, times good. in your life when you doubted that your father even gave a damn that he even loved you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I said to the Rolling Stone, I said, I said, you know, when they interviewed me, I said, basically my dad's dead to me. You know I mean? I, I look at him like he's dead because I have no contact with him. I can't call him up because his, his wife just is nuts and wouldn't let me talk to him or say bad stuff and just, just rally him up to be bad. So it was like, you know what? Me, me and my sister leader. And I think even Nettie, um, we were all just like, you know what, he's, he's not in our lives anymore. We just moved on. And I, basically for me, I put it, I just treated him like he was dead and he wasn't there anymore. Um, and I just carried on with my life. And that was, you know, the Rolling Stone kind of blew it up to a great big thing. You know, Kobe, you know, Ginger Baker's dead to me. You know, it, it wasn't a bad thing. It was basically saying that, you know, because I don't really, you know, it seems like I can't talk to him. You know, I have to move on with my life. There's no point, you know trying it seems like and i thought it was never going to be that i thought when he died i thought it wasn't going to affect me i thought you know when he died you know it was going to be like okay you know i haven't really had him anyway so it you know but unfortunately or fortunately however you want to look at it you know that last day when i got to see him you know i had a really big connection with him and it was like it was like i finally got my dad and then he died six days later so it was kind of like you know wow really i got one I got one real good day with my dad as an adult, you know. Um, did you love him? But, you know, well, of course I did. I mean, I mean, it was my parents. I mean, how about your sisters? Did they? Yeah, I think we all. I mean, you got to realize my family never used that word. We, I never no. heard the word love from my mom or my dad or my or any family. There was never that word used, so it wasn't really a word that I'd ever use or anything or would be said to me or we renewed. But we did. I mean. The social workers, when my dad was gone and my dad was fighting, he kidnapped me from and my sister from school because um, my mom was going nuts at the time too. Um, so he kidnapped us from school to save us from my mom at the time. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it was like that was really one time that, you know, he I had kind of had a little bit of relationship with him, but he vanished on that. And then I, my mom turned up with the cops and um, took us back and got custody of us because, you know, my dad was nuts uh, you know drugs and all that kind of stuff she used drugs against him anyway so she kidnapped us well i'm sorry she, she got the police to get us back from my dad kidnapping us and then social workers would be around and they asked us do you know do you love your dad and we were like yeah of course we do of course that's you know wasn't meant to be told to my mom and you know that caused more problems but anyway i know nothing about your mom was she as volatile as your dad yeah in fact she was probably equal to my dad. Oh, no, um, no, there yeah, can't I mean, be a my, household my, like that. The roof would oh, blow off of the house. No, it, it did. I mean, let me give you an example. I remember someone cutting my mom off when I was a kid. I must have been six or seven. You mean in a and car? In a car. And I can remember um, my mom pulling her keys out of the ignition and putting a key out of every finger and putting a tissue in her hand. And then the next thing I remember is just seeing blood on the front window and my mom getting back in the car and wiping the blood off her keys and driving away. Oh, oh no. She, she to the driver. The to the driver yeah, of she, that other car. The driver came out. The driver came out. She came out and just swung right at him and clocked him in the face with a set of keys sticking oh, out of my. her hand. Yeah. Oh, my. my um, oh, my. And that and <laughs> was, I mean, it was, it was amazing in the car. When my dad, um, my sisters were in the car with me and Nessie, we, we, we told this story um, on some other time. Someone cut my dad off and we pulled into the, uh, it was a swimming bar. So I can't remember what you call them in America. What do you call swimming bars? Um, swimming bars? Yeah, swimming baths, like a swimming pool where people go sw swimming. Okay, a pool. A pool, But it was, yes. a, it was a place that had a, 
it was called Spoon Bars in England. But anyway, we went to go to the pool and they pulled in. So he pulled in right next to them, right? And, um, and got out of the car and said, uh, what the f*** were you thinking? And the guy goes, um, and the guy goes, don't you swear at me. And I tell you, it went on for like five, 10 minutes, but every swear word you could possibly imagine. And ones you couldn't imagine came out of my dad's mouth in a succession, a quick succession, like wanker, piss, you fuck, you know, everything, not even repeating the swear words. Somehow he managed to reel off like 10 minutes of swear words without repeating one swear word. Oh, I believe it. I mean. I don't know how he did it, but I mean, my sisters were just like jaw drops. You know, we were like, we were, we were young. I can't remember how old we were, you know, but I mean, it was just like, my dad was, was, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't outdo my dad in any kind of conflict. He would win. Oh my, my, oh my. Yeah. Oh Lord almighty. Let me ask you this seriously. If you meet somebody brand new in your life, and I'm not talking, you've got a beautiful woman there with you that loves you to death, and I'm not talking about romance. I'm talking about you meet someone in business. You meet someone like me, who you you never met in person, but you have a business situation with. Do you recommend to these strangers that you meet day by day by day to go see the movie uh, beware of Mr. Baker, or do you say, look, uh, I don't really give a damn if you see this or not. I'd prefer maybe you don't see it. You know? No, I think everybody should go see it because it's um, it's it's really well done for start. It's really well put together. Did you like um, it? You liked yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I like it because it was really well put together, and I like the animation, and I like the way it was all, all put together, and it was very accurate, and it shows my dad... In, in a good light, even though it's kind of dark and it's got some bad stuff, it shows the fun side of him too, uh, which was very rare, but it popped out, you know, a lot of the time. I mean, he was really happy when he was playing drums. That's the only time I really saw him happy was when he was playing or playing polo. Playing polo, he was very happy. Oh, and that's, um, that was his love, wasn't it? Always the yeah, sport I mean, that was, of I mean, polo. That's how that's how he lost all his money the first time, and it's how he lost all his money the second time. That's an expensive um, sport. Oh my God! It's like twenty five grand a horse, and uh-huh. you need a minimum of like ten horses to play the game because you need backups because it's really rough on them. Um, and they're all psycho because they're like you know they're pedigree. They have to be pedigree, and they have to be polo horses. Now polo horses aren't a normal horse because a polo horse has to be able to run straight at another horse. With a big stick flying around their head. I mean, that's not a that's not a normal horse. So, and the horses, you know, in polo, the horses they used to slam into each other, and it was a rough sport. And those horses were were nuts. They were psychologically screwed up. So, you know, when he put me on one of those horses when I was like five, six years old, I mean, that was a hell of a horse to try and control when you're like a six year old kid trying to ride a pedigree polo horse, but. Anyway, 25 grand a horse, you know, and then, you know, their upkeep on those horses is really expensive. They've got to be shoes. There's got to be shoes on them all the time, vet bills, you know. So that's how he, he basically blew his money the first time, polo and horses and, and mismanagement of money, you know, paying taxes um, for the cream money he was making for 10 years after cream without making a penny and paying money out to do his bands like Ginger Baker's Air Force and all the other projects he did. He paid for those out of his money. So he was doing all of that for like 10 years and he wasn't a businessman. So he didn't file his taxes. So the tax man came back after 10 years and said, look, you owe us like, you know, 80,000 pounds, which was a lot of money back then. I mean, the six bedroom house we had in Harrow on the hill, which is worth like $3 million now, was worth uh, like 115,000. And so they went and took that. They said, okay, we want, we, we, we're going to take the money. And they just took the house. And I was living in the house, of course, with my, my sister. So we ended up homeless. They just took, they just kicked us out of the house. So I ended up on the streets for like a year. But that's another story. Anyway, so my dad basically lost all his money and went to Italy with his two, three, two, two remaining polo horses, maybe three, I think it was two or three, and lived in Italy and tried to pull his life together. And that's all in the documentary. But, um, you know, the reunion, which I think the, it, I know it, the documentary takes you to when he blew his money the second time, because he went to England and bought 10 polo horses in England for 25 grand a pop and then flew them to Africa, South Africa, where they're worth nothing, because there's a 
quarantine rules. So you can't take a, you can take an animal in, but you can't take an animal out. So he took all those animals in and now they were worthless because they couldn't be sold for anything in Africa and they couldn't be taken out. So that was, you know, like, you know, a good four or five hundred thousand dollars there. And then it cost him a million dollars to fly into Africa. So and then he paid Argentinian polo players five grand a week to come play with him. So oh, his, wow. his money didn't last very long. I mean, the only thing left from his money, from his millions, five, six million dollars he had, whatever he had after the reunion was my mom convinced him to buy me a truck. She said, look, buy your son a truck, for God's sake. You never bought him a car or anything in your life. You never, you, you know, you left when he was seven and you never paid any child support. She didn't, he didn't even pay child support for us. So he done nothing. So my mom said, now you've got this money, at least show, do something for your son, buy him a car or something. Because I was driving an old truck I built myself. You know, I basically bought an old diesel 79 truck and put a gas engine in it and was, you know, building it myself because I didn't have any money. So my dad turned around and goes, okay, your mom's convinced me. I've got to do something for you. So I'm buying your truck. How much are trucks? I said, well, basic truck, 20 grand, you know, for the basic truck. He goes, look, I'll give you 15. So I thought, okay. I mean, 15 grand, that means I have to come up with five. That's good. I sold my old truck. I sold my Toyota Supra I had. It was custom, you know, custom did everything on that. And I bought this new truck. And that's the only thing, once he lost all his money, that was left. And he even turned around to me and said, he said, son, you're going to have to sell that truck because I need some money. Oh and I said, what, dad? Oh There's no way I'm selling that truck. It's the only thing I got. It's the only thing that I, you know, that's left. I'm not selling my truck. And I told him when he got the money, I said to him, I said, look, dad, I'm renting $1,000 a month, renting a unit in, in Orange. Why don't you take a million dollars and buy property? And I'll manage it for you. You can rent it out. You can have an income. He goes, no, I know what I'm doing with my money. I'm buying polar horses and I'm doing this. And I'm like, you know what? What an idiot. Because if he bought property, he would have had income. And I could have managed it and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, that was my You'd have made theory. money off the money. Right. Oh, Exactly. My. But my dad didn't ever think like that. I mean, the amazing thing was, was when my mom died, she managed to buy a house out of money she had left in, in London and got a mortgage and got a job and paid the mortgage off. And then when my grandma died, she sold her, my mum sold her house and paid off the whole mortgage in full. So she owned this house in, in London. So when she died, me and my sisters got a bit of money out of that, which was amazing, but we got nothing from my dad. So amazingly, my mum managed to get some, you know, keep enough money to, to give us something when she, when she died. But with my dad, not a penny. How did you get off the street homeless and back into a house or an apartment or wherever well, you were to my, live? Okay, well, what happened was my mom, we got evicted from the house the first time when I was 14. And I broke back into the house when they were evicting us. I, you know, I didn't close my window all the way. I made it look close. And then when they left, I climbed up the side of the house and got back in. And we squatted our own house for six months. Now, Americans probably don't know what squatting is. Basically, you, you go into a derelict house or a, a abandoned house and you fix up the door and then you have three, three months to four months squatters, right? The, the police have to come and, and, and give you a notice and you can normally make it last for six months sometimes and they're called squatters' rights. So anyway, I broke back into a house. So we squatted our own house for like six months and then what happened was they, they came back, they got another court order to get us out again and I was gone to Italy to see my dad because my dad was living in Italy at the time. So I left Italy to see my dad and the, the bailiffs came and just threw us all, my sisters and my mum, out of the house and took everything that was in the house and threw it out the windows, the top floor, threw it all out into the snow because it was snow at the time. So, look, you know, my, my mum and sister, you know, basically you had, they had to try and get a truck and try and pick up everything and try and find. My mum had got a job at that point. She found a job in a double glazing factory. So there was this warehouse. So she got to convince them to give us a little corner of this warehouse to fold our stuff in. And then my mum with the job and she got a house and got a mortgage and she got the house. And then when she got the house, I moved it back in with my mum. So I was about, I think I was like 15 and a half at that time, maybe getting close to 16. So the good part of this was all that I didn't have to go to school because I was homeless. So the social workers and all those people tried to find me. And they, when they eventually found me, I said, you know what? I'm going to disappear. So don't 
mess with me. I'm, I'm living it. I found a studio. I squatted a bunch of places, but I found a, a rehearsal studio. The, a manager, an old manager, my dad, so I, you know, picked me up and said, you can stay here. So I slept in, on the drum riser of the studio and I used to set the bands up in the day and, you know, set all the bikes up and everything. And then when they left, I practice all night and then sleep on the drum riser and then, you know, eat my breakfast on the drum riser when I woke up and play my drums until the band came in and they set another band up, which was, you know, it was good. I, I stayed there for probably, you know, six months or something. Only downside is this London? No, in London? This is London. This is an Acton in London. This is like downtown London. And there was no hot water. So it was kind of cold in the winter. And it was kind of, I remember it was cold. And we only had cold water. So I had to find showers at friends' houses and wherever I could. But, you know, at least I had a roof over my head for, for some of the time. I mean, some of the time I slept in a park. And I had to tie my drums. All I had was my drums. So I used to tie my drums to me. So that if anybody tried to steal a drum, it'd wake me up. Oh, my. In the park. So in the park. Because sometimes when I first went homeless, all I had was because all my stuff from my childhood got destroyed. When they threw everything out the window, my TV, all my posters, everything I had as a kid was ripped off the wall. So it was all trash. There was only, you know, there wasn't much left after the people threw everything out. Because my, my bedroom was on the second floor. So all my stuff got pretty much ruined. Everything that survived was on the downstairs floor. But all this top stairs, you know, stuff. They threw it out the windows. They didn't even take it down the stairs. They opened the windows and threw it all out the windows, which was insane. But, um, you know, so I, all I had left was um, my, uh, my drums. I had my drums and my Atari unit. And someone stole my Atari unit. So <laughs> all I had was my drums. <laughs> so that's all I had. So I used, to just, I used to put my clothes in my drums inside the drum cases. I had at that time, my drums only had one head on them. So they were, they were called concert toms. So you could, I used to put my drums in my cases upside down and use them to put all my clothes in. So I'd, all I'd be carrying around was my drums everywhere. And when I got to somewhere, I'd unpack my drums and unpack my clothes and whatever stuff I had. So um, that was how I used to travel. And I used to, you know, just used to pull my drums. I had a big flight case with wheels on it. So I could, you know, I wasn't, I could do it in like two trips. I could carry my drums around. And I had a big, pretty big kit. So it wasn't easy, you know, moving that around, but I did it. Was it a double bass drum kit? No, it was a single bass drum kit because my dad always told me, I don't want to see you playing two bass drums until you've mastered one. And I never felt like I'd mastered one. And I played single kick drum up until I was like 20 years old. And then I went double bass drum for a little bit. And then I went back to, I had a double pedal. And then I went back to single. And then I went to see my dad in Colorado. And I did clinics with my dad. And he would have the two kick drums and I'd have the one. And I'd learned to play one really fast. I'd learned this technique where I'd slide my foot up and down the pedal and play all this fast stuff. But the problem with it is if you've got one kick drum and one beater and you play fast, you're going to lose power because one beater's traveling faster. When you have two kick drums and two beaters, you can half the speed of the beater so you've got more power. So my dad would go, bah, 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 and I go, da, 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 da. He'd go, bah, 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 bah. I go, da, 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 da. I go, that's it. I'm done with the single kick drum. I'm getting two kick drums because it's more powerful. Now, the great thing about that is I have a book out called The Forgotten Foot. It's a drum book. Now, for all the drummers out there, it will show why it was really important that my dad said that, because my dad came from a jazz drumming thing. So the left foot is all your drumming is left foot and right hand. The bass drum and the snare drum in jazz are the ones that play in between the beats. Your left foot is your constant in jazz. Your left foot and your right hand are the constant. So you learn to have your left foot playing through all of your stuff. So you learn all the independence. I, I say it like this. If you learn to drive an automatic car, and you drive that automatic car for 20 years, so you can drive really good and you can drive and everything, then someone puts you in a stick shift. You can't drive. Now, if you learn to drive a stick shift, you can drive anything. You can jump in an automatic and drive it whenever you want. It's the same with drumming. If you learn to play drums without that left foot, keeping time at, and as a jazz drummer, as you, as you play as a jazz drummer, if you learn Without that left foot, you will have a bad habit of having the other three limbs be able to play without the left foot independence. And then if you want to learn to bring that left foot in, so say you want to learn to play jazz or Latin or anything using the left foot, you have to go back and relearn how to play everything you've played with the left foot in there. So I had this book. When I, I started teaching, I had a drum school, and I, I was noticing this. I was noticing when I started teaching, but what my dad taught me was so right because he made me learn 
how to play with that hi-hat, keeping time. The first thing my dad taught me was a paradiddle, but he didn't just teach me the hand part of a paradiddle, which is right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. He said, I, the first thing you've got to do is play quarter notes with the left foot and half notes with the right foot. Now, if you don't read music, quarter note, if you ever listen to music, the quarter note is what you nod your head or you tap your foot to. It's the, it's the beat that you dance to. So he made me learn to keep that dancing beat, the quarter note, with my left foot through everything I could play and the bass drum playing on half notes, which is half time of the quarter note. So I had that independence before I even got to drum kit because he wouldn't let me get on a drum kit until I'd mastered all of my rudiments, backwards, forwards, left-handed, right-handed, all the different emplacements you can put it. And I had the independence of my feet. So when I grew up playing, I always had that grounding on my feet and I always had the independence. So when I went to double bass drum, I didn't have to learn anything. It was all there. And I was so happy that my dad had made me do that because, you know, I'd learned the right way. And unfortunately, so many drummers, they learn the wrong way. And it's really detrimental to their, their career if they want to do anything else but play. If they just want to play pop and rock music, you're fine. You don't have to use the left foot. You can get away with three and drumming. But if you want to play anything intricate or if you want to play like, you know, anything good, or play on the level of like, even like the level of, you know, Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, you have to have your left foot in there. Watch Chad Smith. His left foot's going all the time. Um, He's and a all the very top good drummers, drummer. Very good. Yeah, I like him. All, yeah. All the top drummers, like the Bozios, the Vinnies, Steve Gadd, you know, all of those people have that left foot technique. And, you know, and it means that you can play double bass drums without having to learn double bass drums. So it's, it's you know, I would suggest if you're a drummer and you really want to, Take this instrument seriously. Go buy my book. It's called The Forgotten Foot. You can get it on Amazon, and that will help because that's basically how my dad taught me to play. Um, so it's basically my dad teaching you through my book because he put out a book, but it was, I don't even know what happened to it, but it wasn't very, um, you know, it wasn't very, uh, it was just kind of some of his advanced stuff. My book takes, you know, the beginning to the advanced. So it gives you that kind of, you know, whole thing. But that's what, you know, I was really happy that my dad said that to me and made me do that because. That's the right way to play drums. You really want to start with, um, you know, you really want to start in jazz. You really want to learn that, you know, you can play rock to begin with, but then get into jazz and get that left foot going because that's, you know, that's what made my dad such an amazing drummer and what made him change drumming because he was one of the first commercial players to have double bass drum. There was a few drummers before him, Baby Dodds and I think Louis Belson or something. Um, a couple of drummers that had two kick drums before him, but the jazz thing helped him and when he he played uh, jazz he basically played the jazz footing on his bass drum and that's why a lot of people the drummers then they obviously listened to cream a lot of drummers picked up listening to cream and those drummers some of them didn't realize what the double bass drum patterns were so they just thought you know they played their right foot on the bass drum and their left foot on the on the up notes you know and basically led with their right foot because that's how they played and they became teachers and they taught everybody else, which is completely backwards. My dad led with his left foot. I lead with my left foot. Dennis Chambers leads with his left foot. All of the, you know, a lot of drummers lead with their left foot that come from jazz. Because it's, it's basically you don't have to relearn anything. So, so that's unfortunate that, you know, a lot of the drummers didn't understand and from those days and became teachers and then taught the bad habit of three-limb drumming on. Because I had so many students that are taking lessons from people that were in music stores. This is another thing that amazes me. My dad was the best drummer in the world in 1969 and 1970, right? The best drummer. He was like, you know, all of the great drummers listened to him. And, and, but my dad could not get a job teaching in a music store because he didn't have a music degree. Now, I, heard, I, never, I heard he never had a lesson. Well, no, he had lessons. Um, he, he had lessons from um, Phil Seaman, and uh, he picked up stuff from Africa. He had lessons, but not like full, you know, like from beginning to end. He just had more pointers. Pointers, like kind of okay. How, yeah, kind of how my dad taught me. My dad gave me lessons, but they weren't like, you know, once a week lessons. I'd see him for like a month and get what I could, and then I didn't see him for five or six years. So it was more like, you know, pointers and stuff like that. Um, so he, he had pointers, and he learned to play jazz, and he learned to read music at a very young age so he could play in all the bands back then because you had to learn to play music. He was very schooled. My dad could re read and write bass and treble clef out. He could write a trumpet line out for a trumpet player and give it to him. That's how 
school my dad was. And people don't know that about my dad. They thought he was just a drug addict rock drummer, which he kind of was in Korea. But, um, you know, he was very schooled. He, uh, he knew a lot more than people know. So I didn't yeah. know what you just said. I would never yeah. have thought your dad could write music out. Yeah, he made me one of the lessons in Italy. Was the, one of the first lessons was you need to learn to read music. And he taught me to read music in three days. You know, if I got it wrong, I got smacked. So I got it right pretty quickly. Uh, um, I have no but, doubt that he would initiate violence, even on his own <laughs> child. I oh, have man. zero doubt. I say beware of Mr. Baker. The, the, best, the best one was that even if it wasn't our fault, like my dad was playing with us when we were kids. We must have been, I must have been five. My sister must have been six. And he, he pushed us into the larder, which is a, uh, what's a larder? A pantry. He pushed us into a pantry and shut the door, right? No, so me no. And my sister, no. So me and my sister are pushing on the door to open it, and he's holding the door, right? Um, so he's holding the door, thinks it's all funny, and me and my sister pushing. So he takes his hand off the door, and the door swings open and hits him in the face. Oh. Right? So that was it. Me and my sister were in trouble now. So what he used to do when he was going to discipline us was he used to sit us down, and he had a ring on each finger. Sometimes he had two rings on a finger. So he used to take the rings off one by one slowly and put them on a table in front of us. Clonk, you know, next one, clonk, you know, one by one. So it would take him, you know, five minutes to get all his rings off. And then he would spank the living daylights out of us. So, you know, I, I even said to him, like, later on in life, I'm like, what the hell was that kind of punishment where you take your rings off one way? He goes, you're lucky I took my rings off. Oh my. <laughs> yes, we yes, were. Yes, that's him. That's Ginger Baker. Oh, my goodness. The book is on Amazon. It's called The Forgotten Foot, and you recommend right. that only for the drummer, or does that have any value at all to the common music lover? Or is that Not strictly really, drummer's yeah. book? It's, it's strictly a drummer's book because it's it's uh, it's a drum book. It's not really any good to anybody who wants to read a novel or anything. But, you know, one day I might come out of a book uh, because it would be pretty outrageous if I did. Um, so one day I might sit down and write a book, but not I haven't done that yet. Um, but one day I probably will. Okay. The band Cream was formed in 1966, right there at about the time America had gotten familiar with the lads from Liverpool who came over and appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. And music changed forever when that four-piece organization came. And was your father's band Cream, were they the first ever power trio in rock and roll or would you say along with the Jimi hendrix experience in the u.s and other select acts that what, he did, was one of you, the power trios right but Jimi hendrix was slightly after cream as far as I yeah can i tell. believe that i think that's also true do you believe your um, father was the first power trio with his man or no i think they were i mean i can't think of anyone before them that was doing what they were doing that's why they were so unique because they were they were improvising they were doing a jazz improvisation thing with a you know commercial song in front of it so you know that whole jamming thing I mean, when did the Grateful Dead appear? They were no, oh, I can't. Uh, I can't call out the name, but uh, Jerry okay, Garcia was, married a, a gal that was from the town I'm in right now. Fifty-five years ago, Lisa saying. I so, would. I would not argue with that. Yeah. Yes. So they were probably they they were like a jam band, but they weren't like you know. I said this before. Grateful Dead were a really good band, but they weren't like the improv that the um, Cream did. Cream were more aggressive improv it was more oh, definitely like, no it was more of a like a real aggressive thing um and i think they were the first it was kind of like the first heavy metal kind of you know heavy rock it was i think it was the first power trio that was out there uh -huh. i mean i might be wrong but i can't think of anything else that was that was at least got as famous as them i think i think they kind of put that mold in there they made that mold for future you know power trios to go off from all right, let me just call off for the sake of our audience out there that are not music historians. And, and you and I can go on for hours talking about the business because we spent our whole life in it. But Kofi, what is your thoughts, for example, on the song Sunshine of Your Love? Give me a quick synopsis of your opinion of that. Okay, well, that's another great tune. You know, Jack came up with the, you know, da-da-da-da. Obviously, he was going da-da-da-da, bap-bap-bap. And my dad was like, no, slow it down. 
And let's do it backwards, you know, ba 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 da da ba ba da ba really hammering the one. So my dad kind of bought that. I mean, I think Sunshine of Your Life, Sunshine of Your Love wouldn't have been as good of a song if my dad hadn't manipulated it to give it that tribal feel. Because um, he played backwards. He played the one heavy. You know, back in those days, the two and the four were the heavy beat. You know, my dad put the, the heavy beat on the one and the three, which was backwards to what they, you know, he actually played the snare and the tom on the one and the three and the bass drum. It was basically reggae, way before even reggae. So, and again, with White Room, White Room's another famous tune. A bolero, would, it, bolero beat. Right. Who, who, who else would come up with a 5-4 bolero but the drummer? You know, I mean, that was all my dad, that 5-4 bolero. You know, bum, ba 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 that 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 was you know my dad right so there was the this was not a uh, cream song because blues artists had done it prior to them leonard skinnard went on and put it on out as a hit years and years after but the song crossroads everybody mm-hmm. loved crossroads by cream right well that yeah they stole it from was it something Josh one of the blues artists yeah, yeah i forget who guy, had yeah. it uh, i yeah. feel free by cream what do you think about that what's your opinion uh, that's another good song. That's more of a, I would say that's more of a vocal melody song. It's, it's more of their commercial. They never did it live because it was more of a, you know, one of their kind of studio album commercial songs. There's a lot to that song to do it live. There's a lot of harmonies and a lot of vocal stuff. So that was one of their more poppy tunes. My dad, I don't, I don't think Cream ever really did that, you know, again after that. I mean, it was just, it was a, it was a studio song. Correct. Back to the blues. I don't know if it was Albert King, but I guarantee you this is another song that one of the black blues artists had years before Cream touched it. And people loved the song. I don't think it was Cream's most anywhere near their most successful commercial song, but it was called Born Under a Bad Sign. That has to be a classic blues song. Do you ever play that now? I do. And that's one of the songs where... My dad played his left foot on the kick drum as the hi-hat pattern on the upbeat. And if you listen to the drum beat in that, um, the only way you can play that properly is to have your left foot on the double bass drum playing the hi-hat pattern, playing the two and the four. So that's another song where my dad brought a drum pattern into a song that made it way better. And, you know, my dad was so innovative. That was the thing, because my dad was cutting new boundaries. He was... He was taking that jazz stuff that he learned and taking a lot of drugs and then just playing it by feel and playing it in the rock thing, playing, get, putting this heavy stuff in it. You know, my dad became a heroin addict when he was very young. So, you know, he was a heroin addict before Cream. And in fact, one of the things with Cream was, you know, he had to stop becoming a heroin addict. Eric said, you know, you've got to quit heroin. And he did quit heroin for a while. And then towards the end of Cream, he came back onto it. But um, Eric you know, Clapton I mean, had the same problem when he was young. Well, he was more of a drinker and more into uh, other stuff. But I think he got into heroin at some point. Well, I mean, Will, Will Johns, his nephew, has told me stories because he knows more about that, that side of things. Because when we do the Music of Cream gig that we go out and do, you know, uh, Will will tell his stories about Eric and I'll tell my stories about my dad. Yes. Um, and that's where I've learned a lot of the stories about, you know, Eric. In fact, when I, when I did the, the uh, memorial for my dad, in, in London last year, was it last year, February 2020, right before the pandemic, um, I sat down with Eric and, and I had a good talk with him and he gave me some really cool stories about my dad, which I'd never heard before. And that was really, that was the best moment. I wanted to do the same with Winwood, but I never got a chance because um, I only saw him at the gig and then after the gig, I didn't see him. So I didn't get a really chance to sit down with Winwood, you know, Stevie Winwood and, 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 um, you know, uh, Stephen, as Eric calls him, and get stories from him. So I had a drummer for Steve Winwood on the uh, the show. And when we get off the air, if you want me to talk to you about it, I could hook the both of you up because he played. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, he toured with Winwood. Yeah, because I would like to talk to Winwood again and to say, you know, I just like to get some, you know, backstories on my dad you know, just to. You know, before Winwood dies, because, you know, all these stories are going to die with these people. And, and I just want to hear them because, you know, now my dad's dead. And I never really, unfortunately, I never really got to, as you say, interview my dad. Because the stuff I learned about my dad was sitting down next to my dad when he was tele- giving an interview. That was the only time, because my dad would not talk 
to me about any of that. And me and my sisters, everybody knew not to bring up anything about cream or anything about that kind of stuff because he just didn't want to talk about it. So I heard him know, describe the band. Your dad said, and I quote, he said, uh, I'm trying to remember it. I do not have it written down in front of me. He said, the band Cream has always been like an albatross around my neck. Yeah. Well, it I was something. It because, it, it, yeah. he, he got to the point. He didn't really want to talk about it. I mean, that's probably why he never played any, because after Cream, he was so became so famous in Cream that... Um, Everybody just wanted to hear Cream songs, and he wanted to do his own. He did, you know, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and he wanted to do all his, you know, original stuff with his, you know, the Africans and all the all that kind of tribal world beat music as it was at the time. You know, he was really into that world. You know, he went to Africa and studied with all the Africans, and and he. That's why my name's Kofi. Kofi is Ghanaian. It's an African name. It means, you know, it's an African name. So what's it really mean? What does African. it mean? It, and he was born on Friday. I mean, slightly naughty boy, born on Friday. He was really into the Africa thing, and he wanted to do that. And everybody was just, you know, like, we want to hear Sunshine Love and White Room and Crossroads and everything. So he was pissed. So, yeah, he didn't really. And he, he refused to, to do anything. I mean, Eric probably didn't want to be around Jack and my dad after after Cream anyway. I'm, I'm pretty much sure Eric wanted to get his sanity back. Because <laughs> yeah, my, yeah. my take, my take, I played on stage with all three of them now. I've played, you know, obviously I played with my dad a bunch and I did some gigs with Jack in uh, Budapest and I, then I played with Eric at the, the Memorial. So I've played with all three of them. So I've hung out with all three of them and out of all three of them, Eric seems to be the sanest, the most down-to-earth person you can talk to. Jack was always all over the place and my dad was impossible. So Eric was probably the only one that you could actually sit down and have a conversation with and, and you know, be normal in front of. I mean... So um, I'm sure Eric wanted to, I'm sure dealing with my dad and Jack fighting on stage over and over again and, and my dad punching Jack off stage and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure Eric was like, you know, wanting to get out of there and get some sanity back for a while. So that's probably why Queen never really got back together again. Right. Stop um, the world until, and well, let me off. Right. Yeah. You know. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking to <laughs> Kofi Baker, his dad, the legendary Ginger Baker, the drummer with Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, and Cream. Cream yeah, was remember, actually your dad's band. band it was right, not Eric's. My dad's band. Yeah, he right. put it together. He was the leader of the band, was he not? He was. Yes, he was the leader. He put it together. It was his band. He was even managing it at first. He gave it over to Robert Stigwood. Who uh, who you know, managed up, the BGS? Who managed who financed Elton John? The finance. Finance the Bee Gees from Cream's money. Oh no, no. Yeah, the Bee Gees. The Bee Gees were financed from the money he made from Cream. And Elton John. He had a lot to do with Elton John. Yeah, I don't know what he had to do with Elton John, but uh, he had I, a lot to do I, with John Mayo. Okay. okay. Yes. Yes, he. Died. I've never met. I've, I've never met Elton John though. I'd like to meet Elton John once. Right. He's once. in. He's in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Kofi. Okay. Now listen. I should try and meet out of him at some point. Cream had. I want to get this in before I say goodbye and let you talk to okay. the people as we leave. The band Cream celebrated their fiftieth anniversary, and it was at that fiftieth anniversary that milestone. For your father's band, Cream, you decided to do something musically, which would later go on to change your life. What was that, and how can people hear the results of what it is you've done? Well, that was the band called The Music of Cream, which, um, you know, I'd done, I'd played Cream, Cream music from 2005. From I went to the, the reunion in 2005 at the Madison Square Gardens. That was, you know, my dad said, I'm not doing it anymore. And Eric's, you know, they all didn't want to do it. That was it. So I said, I'm going to keep this music going because I think it's really good music. So I played, I started playing a little bit. I, I started a band called Kobe Baker's Cream Experience and I was doing that with some other stuff I liked. But it wasn't until the 50th anniversary around about then that um, a guy put together the musical Cream and put, you know, Jack Bruce's son in it at the, at the beginning. And um, we went off and did the musical Cream. And that's, that's now kind of my calling because you know now my dad's dead and Jack's dead and Eric Eric's still going but Eric doesn't play much he probably does I think he does White Room and Crossroads and Sunshine and a few of those classics but but I play now I'm keeping the entire Cream repertoire going playing it out on the out we'll be out touring in March of 2022 
uh, around America and around Europe, and it will be called the Music Cream. And that's that's me keeping that legacy alive. I'm the only one keeping it alive now. So, where can people uh, find out what the schedule is, and where can people get a hold of Kobe uh, Baker just to say hello? I heard you on the podcast, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How can they get a hold of you? KofiBaker.com. So K-O-F-I-B-A-K-E-R.com is the website, and it's got pretty much everything on it. Or, you know, MusicaCream.com is the other one. But Kofi Baker will link you to the Music of Cream. So you can just put in my name, .com, and it's the website, and it will give you all of the stuff I'm doing. Because I'm playing some local gigs. I'm playing in Cincinnati next month. I um, did not know that. I honestly yeah, did playing, not know that. I'm playing a place called... Ludlow the, Garage. Uh, right. Right, yeah. Yes. We just had um, uh, Corky Lang from mountain has his okay. own band the corky corky lang plays mountain and yes, they're either I, know. I played alongside that there you go they were either here or they're coming on their way we tried to get him on the show to no avail we actually never heard sure. back from him and that's why i'm in the dark about it i would have loved well, to have not, had... su- not surprising corky is not the most again not the most stable person he's from that era so you've got to realize that there was a lot of drugs done back then, and, and yeah. I think a lot of brain cells were fried. We invited so, um, him, and we did not hear back. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised, but, you know. Okay. I won't. I won't go on. To, I won't go down that road. No, we sure won't. <laughs> Kofi Baker, let me thank you, and let me thank your dear better half, Lisa. Without her okay. work and her assistance, <laughs> we would have never had this historical show today. There are people that just love the band Cream and all of the hit records that they had. And like you say, if it weren't for you, his son, the the band that your dad started and put all these hits on the charts with that are known worldwide and nobody's keeping the music alive except for a few of the classic songs which eric would right. do on his tour you're keeping the music of cream alive which is why your current band that you're on an international tour with is called the music of cream and you right. are the star kofi baker K-O-F-I-Baker.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, my other band that I do is called The Psychedelic Trip. That's the one that's playing at Ludlow's Garage, which, which does The Cream, but it also does Blind Faith which is the other dad, my, the other band my dad did with Eric Clapton. So um, I'm keeping the Blind Faith and the Cream stuff alive in that band. So the music of Cream is purely Cream, and they do some Eric Clapton classics. But the psychedelic trip is Kofi Baker playing Cream, Blind Faith, and Beatles and Hendrix and just other stuff from the psychedelic era. But it's, it's a broader spectrum. That's why I keep the two bands separate, because one is really dedicated to playing the music of Cream, and the other one does Cream but does Blind Faith, Hendrix, Beatles, Bowie, whatever we do. We do all kinds of other stuff. One more thing, and then we're going to get out of here. I told Lisa... I said, <laughs> when I expected to see Kofi Baker, I expected to see someone who looked like he <laughs> was had, had one foot in the grave and another one on the <laughs> banana peel. I looked to see someone who was 35 years older than what he actually was because of abuse of his right. substance intake. <laughs> I expected someone who was full of hatred, who yeah. who would want to fight at the blink of an eye. And instead, you look like you work out at a gym. You look muscular, you look healthy, you sound healthy, and you do not sound like an individual who is abusing their body. Is health no, important to you? Oh, health is above my drumming. Health is Where above did that editing. come felt, from? You weren't born with know. that. I don't I know, know. I don't know. I mean, it came from, it came from the fact that um, I was really skinny and malnutrition. My parents, I, all they gave me was sugar and... And they didn't even cook for me because they left. So I grew up really unhealthy. I was eating basically pancakes. That's all I could cook, beans on toast and sugar. And so when I got into my teens, I started thinking, and I met people that were health conscious. And I was like, you know, I want to go down this road. And when I got to like 20, 21, I started seriously working out. And I, I became a fitness trainer. I became a fitness trainer and learned how to do all the fitness and nutrition. And it's an ongoing situation. I've, I've been keeping my... Nutrition has got better and better and better over the years, and me and Lisa have even refined it even more. 
because she's a full-on vegan. I'm a, I'm close to a vegetarian. I'm nearly a vegetarian. But, um, you know, so we're, we're like, I just, I'm into health. Health, your body is your most important thing. Without your body, you don't have life. So it should be above money. A lot of people put money above the health, and I think that's backwards. You, you know, you would give up all the money in the world to have your health back. So, you know. There are people is, that were millionaires that could not buy right. their health back. Right, because they spent all their time just going after money and not worrying about their health. And that's, that's the most important thing to me is health. So I work out five, six, sometimes seven days a week. I've got my own gym in my house. I cook all my own food. I don't eat any processed food. You know, when I go on the road, I cook all my food. I, I bring a cooker on the road with me, believe it or not. And I cook all my food. I go to the store and I cook all my food and, and put it in Tupperware and keep it in the, the bus on the fridge and eat that. Will so, you yeah. promise me? Promise me one thing, and it has nothing to do with the playing of drums. It has nothing to do with music. If I could say one thing to you, Kofi Baker, after what you and your sisters have been through in all of your lives, will you concentrate the rest of your days on earth and think of me when I tell you, keep a stable home a stable home life, a place to hang your hat, a place to right. lay your head and stay the hell off of those streets and, and all this nonsense that you grew up with. Have a stable home because you know what? You've already proven that you can play. You've already proven that your relatives could play. How about a stable home life and you play when you want to play, but most importantly, you come back to a safe place to hang your head. Can you arrange that? I got that with Lisa. That's what I got. God bless you. So, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot tell you what an honor it has actually been to see a man come out of the situation this person was in, and now he's got his head screwed on right. He's a health nut. His woman is a health nut. They are wonderful people to be around. I, I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed both of them in my life in the very short time that they've been there. Uh, go see him play with his band, The Music of cream and i'm talking about the legendary ginger baker's son kofi baker k-o-f-i baker.com that's the website go there drummers the book is on amazon it's called the forgotten foot that's for drummers only for the rest of you buy the cream songs they revolutionized the power trio movement in rock and roll and at this time i think i'd better before we run further overtime just have you say good night kofi good night kofi all right ladies and gentlemen our guest today is on tour currently it is kofi baker the son of cream drummer ginger baker before we get out of here what else do you have to say to the world kofi baker before we leave go ahead thank you very much and everybody stay healthy and stay well this is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. On behalf of myself and Kofi Baker from KOFIBaker.com, son of the legendary drummer for Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, and Cream, Ginger Baker, we would like to say bye-bye, take care, and we'll see you on the next one. Good night. Good night, everybody. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.